the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University and author of The Life You Can Save, How to Do Your Part to End World Poverty, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM in New York City. It was 10 years ago that the book, The Life You Can Save, How to Do Your Part to End World Poverty, shook the world of philanthropy and got people everywhere to think about their own giving in an entirely different way. And his impact has been such that a 10th anniversary edition, which has been updated, has just come out. Its author is Peter Singer, the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University, and considered by many to be the world's most influential living philosopher. And he is with us now. Good evening, Peter, and welcome to The Business of Giving. Good evening, Denver. Good, good to be with you. You know, as a philosopher, Peter, there are many roads to go down. So what got you first interested in seeing that people use their charitable dollars in a fashion that would relieve the greatest amount of suffering and do the most good? I was interested in philosophy being practical, that is, in it having an impact in the world. I I never wanted to study philosophy just for the sake of my own learning or even of influencing just my academic colleagues. So uh, when I was a graduate student in Oxford, uh, I was, it was at the time of the crisis in what was then East Pakistan and became Bangladesh mm-hmm. when uh, the Pakistani army repressed the autonomy movement uh, of uh, Bangladesh or of East Pakistan and nine million refugees fled across the border from that oppression, across the border into India. And India appealed for help to look after this vast number of people that they'd suddenly acquired and had to shelter and feed and so on. And there wasn't really enough forthcoming. So I started thinking, you know, what are my obligations as somebody who, you know, I was only a graduate student living on a scholarship, but still I was comfortable and I did have some spare cash. What are my obligations to do something about this situation, to help people? And uh, I started writing about that and I contributed an article called Famine, Affluence, and Morality to what was then a completely new journal called Philosophy and Public Affairs, uh-huh. which was trying to get philosophers involved in public affairs, as the title suggests. Uh, so that's really what got me started, thinking about what are our obligations as people who are comfortably off in wealthy countries to people in extreme poverty. Uh, and it's all gone from there. Yeah. Well, one of the most famous thought experiments that you're known for is the drowning child. Share that with us, if you would. Right. That comes from the article I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to get across to people the idea that we do have responsibilities to help, even if we're not actually the cause of the problem, I ask my readers to imagine that they're walking across a park, that there's a pond in the park, that they know that it's quite a shallow pond, um, And suddenly they see that there's a small child who's fallen into that pond. And, of course, you would look around at first for the parents or the babysitter who's looking after this little child. But just assume that there isn't anyone there. You don't know how the child got into the pond. It's not your child. But here's a child in danger of drowning 
because although the pond is shallow, it's too deep for that child. But you could easily rush into the pond and grab the child and pull the child out and save the child's life. There is a small cost to doing that, though, because you're wearing your best clothes, you've just got dressed up to go somewhere fancy, and you don't have time to get them off. But if you wade into this muddy pond, they're going to get ruined. Mm -hmm. So you'll have to replace some of your clothes um, if you do this. Now, then I ask the readers to think, well, would it be... Would it be okay to say, look, that's not my child. I'm not responsible. I didn't put the child in the pond, um, and I don't want to ruin my clothes just to save this stranger. And when I ask people that, um, they respond, no, that's, that's not a – you can't compare your clothes to a child's life. That's not an excuse for ignoring the child. Uh, that would be a terribly wrong thing to do. You, you really ought to rush into the, chi- into the pond and help the child. Uh, so, you know, once I've got people to agree to that, then I say, okay, but for a similar kind of cost, maybe you can save the life of a child somewhere else in the world. It's not a child right in front of you. It's not a child you can see. But by donating to an effective organization, you can still do it. So if it's wrong not to help the child, why isn't it wrong not to do something for those who are further away but whose life is also in danger and who you could help. Well, that will cause people to pause for a minute or two. And that crystallizes the essence of effective altruism. How would you define that? Effective altruism is uh, a philosophy that says we ought to live our lives so that at least one of our important aims is to make the world a better place that we're not just living for ourselves, we're not even just living for our family and those close to us, but thinking about the world as a whole is something that's important to do. And when we do that, so that's the altruism part, obviously, when, when we do that, whatever resources we're prepared to put into that, whether it's time, energy, skills, or money, we ought to try to make sure that they're as effective as possible in doing as much good as we can with those resources. And to do that, we need to draw on evidence and reasoning to think about what is the best cause and within that, what is the most effective organization that I can support or work with to make the biggest possible positive difference in the world. Yeah, and and I guess part of that concept that you're just talking about is that all lives have equal value. Would that be correct? That's right. Uh, that the fact that somebody is living far away in another country, the fact that they're of a different ethnic group or a different religion, is not a reason for thinking that it's less important whether they die or their children die or whether they can see or go blind or uh, get a malaria or don't get malaria. Um, these things are equally important wherever you are and whoever you are. Well, let's talk about going blind. I have a very good friend who works for a organization that trains guided dogs. She tells me it's about $50,000 to train one of these dogs, and it's a wonderful organization, a worthwhile organization. They provide freedom and independence to an individual to to live their lives. Is there a better way to spend that $50,000 than on training a guided dog for a single individual? Yes, there is a better way, and and it's it's tough to say it because I admire people like your friend who are working to help others. That's a good thing to do, and there's no doubt that having a guide dog helps somebody who's blind. But it isn't as good as getting your sight restored or as not going blind 
in the first place. I think anybody who's blind with a guide dog would, would rather have their sight back. Uh, and when we look at the cost, as you say, $50,000, it's expensive to train a guide dog because it takes a lot of time and, and effort. Um, and you know, when you compare that with either doing a, a simple cataract operation on somebody who is already blind but can't get that operation done because they're in a low-income country and they don't have the money, uh, or compare it with preventing people going blind from trachoma, which is the largest single cause of preventable blindness in the world, both of these procedures are really quite inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say $100, right? So you compare that $100 to restore someone's sight or prevent someone going blind with $50,000 for um, providing a guide dog, and you can see uh, that there's 500 people whose sight could be restored for the cost of training one guide dog. And, and therefore, you know, I'm going to say, an effective altruist will say, we really ought to pick the low-hanging fruit here. We really ought to use our resources to do the most good. And the way the world is at present, that's not donating to support guide dog organizations. Yeah, that is so interesting, Peter. So let me ask you what an effective altruist would say about this. So if I'm walking through the park and I see that child drowning, but I'm running late to give a speech, um, and I'm going to get paid a million dollars for that speech, and I've already declared that I'm going to give that million dollars to the Against Malaria Foundation. Um, but if I don't get there in time, I won't get that opportunity. What should I do? That's, that's, very, that's emotionally very tough, right? Because, of course, an effective altruist is going to have to say, you ought to give the, give the speech and get the million dollars because, uh, as I just said, that, that can save... Uh, a large number of lives. You know, we've been talking about restoring sight in people. Uh, so that could be 10,000 people whose sight you could restore, or mm-hmm. in terms of saving lives, maybe that's somewhat more expensive, but it's still, let's say, going to be 1,000 people or something like that whose lives you could save. Um, so that is better than saving one life. Mm-hmm. But emotionally, to actually walk past that child and say that child is going to drown is very is very tough. And I don't know that... You know, looking at you, I don't know that I would want you to be the kind of person who could just ignore that child. Um, so that's the dilemma. But but if if you really imagine it as a hypothetical situation that you could do that and those would be the consequences, yeah. I'm going to have to say uh, don't let the million dollar go uh, if this is the only chance you have to get it and to donate it mm-hmm. to effective charities. That actually is better than rescuing the child. Yeah, yeah. You know, what I find so interesting about this, too, is that we're always comparing one charity to another. So if I want to save the whales, I'm going to look at eight organizations to save the whales and see which one is doing the best job. But if I'm not wrong, effective outputs are really comparing one cause to another. Would that be correct? And deciding what cause is actually going to do the most good as opposed to a charity within a cause. Uh, well, certainly, effective altruists will look first at the question, what cause is going to do the most good? Once you have decided that, mm-hmm. then sure, you do want to look at whether some of the organizations working in that cause are, are more effective than others. But um, yeah, in a way, the more difficult question, because it involves questions of values to compare different causes, um, that's the question that effective altruists have probably spent most time on. Uh, and then when they find a good cause, they go and look at one of the organizations like uh, Give Well or like uh, The Life You Can Save, which I founded, um, to find which are the most effective charities working in that cause. Yeah, yeah. No, the rigor that you guys put to this is um, unbelievable. Um, here's another issue that people might have, and it's trying to circle this, you know, the square um, about effective altruism. 
Loyalty and gratitude play an important role. So an individual goes to college on a scholarship, wouldn't have been able to go otherwise, um, gets a great foundation of an education, becomes successful, makes a lot of money, and feels loyalty to that institution. Or uh, a, a parent's child was saved by a local cancer hospital in their town. So the two things that come into play are loyalty and gratitude. How do they address those while also trying to adhere to many of the principles of effective altruism? Look, I, I think we have many motivations for giving, and they're not all compatible with effective altruism. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as, you know, effective altruists are not saints. I don't want to give anyone the impression that everything they do all the time is directed towards doing the most good in the world. Um, you know, maybe there, there are one or two people I know who come very close to that. But, <laughs> well, it's one or but, two more than I know. <laughs> right, but the, the great majority of them are not like that. Um, so, you know, they're spending money on things that, that uh, aren't doing a lot of good in the world. Um, so certainly, you know, you can, if you want to, spend some money on things that are doing some good but not the most good. And, uh, you know, donating to your alma mater, right? Um, I, I teach at Princeton. I'm not a Princeton graduate, um, but I'm often asked by my students uh, because they get, you know, they're being lined up for these approaches from the development office at Princeton. Should I donate to Princeton University? Well, what I say to them is, look, if that's something you want to do, if you feel, you know, some loyalty or some gratitude to the institution that has educated you so well, um, sure, you know, do a little bit of that. But don't confuse that with effective altruism because Princeton has an endowment that uh, over, over, over $20 billion yeah. at the moment, I think. It goes up and down a little bit. But, yeah, it's, it's not really uh, – Princeton is a wonderful institution, but it has – basically what it needs to continue to be a wonderful mm -hmm. institution. And you're not going to make much difference. Um, whereas uh, there are other things you can do where your donation will make a much more significant difference to specific people. Uh, and so I say uh, reserve, you know, the bulk of your giving, I think, should be giving as effectively as possible. And regard the other things, whether it's for your university or, uh, you know, the hospital that supported your relative when uh, she had breast cancer, um, regard that as something different, a different sort of pocket of money, um, which you want to do, and, and that's okay. But uh, uh, otherwise, I'd say yeah, reserve, reserve most of what you can afford to give for where it will do the most good. Yeah, that's a wonderfully balanced and, and common sense answer. And I think that's what you're really saying. It's effective altruism. There has to be some common sense that imbues that in terms of your own proclivities and loyalties. But it really provides a wonderful guide in terms of how to think about your charity, uh, charitable giving. Um, you know, there's a, another issue, I think, that sometimes when people talk about the life you can save, they may say, well, you know, that's a bit paternalistic. It's a bit outdated. Um, the developed people in the developing world do not need to be saved by the dollars of the Western world. It just reinforces the power imbalance between donor and recipient. How would you respond to that? I, I just don't think it's true that um, the, uh, there are no people in developing countries whose lives can be saved by uh, donations to effective charities from the developed world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and those lives will be lost. They are being lost as we're talking um, because the donations have not, are not sufficient. So, you know, you can, you can uh, look at malaria as, as an example. Um, when people, and especially children, sleep under 
bed nets to protect them from malaria, uh, they're less likely to die. That's statistically proven. Um, and yet not all of the places where malaria is prevalent have been covered uh, in terms of distrib- distribution of bed nets. So if we don't do it, it's not going to happen or it's not going to happen for some time. And during that time, uh, people are going to die. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned a moment ago that the life uh, you can save dot org. You've started an organization, and I have been so impressed at the rigor that you've brought to analyzing and reviewing these organizations. Tell us what you look at and how you determine your recommendations, which are front and center on uh, your homepage if somebody comes to visit. Yes. Uh, so we have drawn on on research that has been done by others. We do not have the capacity uh, to have our own full-time professional researchers, but uh, we draw on research that's done by others. You, you might have noticed uh, the Nobel Memorial Prize for Economics this year went to uh, Esther Duflo and yes. Abhajit Banerjee and, and Michael Kramer, researchers who've been doing randomized controlled trials on anti-poverty interventions. Right, they're at the MIT Poverty Lab, would they be? That's right, yes, mm-hmm. yes. And Michael Kramer is at Harvard, but mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so that kind of research started off this idea of doing more rigorous research on which interventions help. Uh, it's been taken up by GiveWell, uh, which uh, does have the resources to have a, a team of researchers working on this. And uh, so we draw on their recommendations to a considerable extent. We're a little broader than, than GiveWell, um, and we do accept other organizations which have been audited and evaluated in other ways as uh, being highly effective in terms of their anti-poverty interventions. So we have a panel of experts who looks at that evidence uh, drawn from various sources and selects the organizations that we want to be recommending. Well, you have an impressive group of, of, of people reviewing this and an impressive group of, of recipients. How would you weigh um, the Against Malaria Foundation, which ostensibly can save a person's life, with Give Directly, which are basically going to be direct cash transfers to lift the standard of living of of a person? How does one weigh between uh, mortality and increasing uh, income? Yeah, those are difficult questions, and and they they, – both these organizations relate to working with people in extreme poverty. uh, and they both do different things. The, uh, giving bed nets against malaria doesn't only save lives. It does save lives, and that's the sort of thing that the, is up front and center, that you can save a child's life. But, of course, it prevents other people getting malaria, who not everybody who gets malaria dies. Uh, and malaria is a, a really debilitating disease. I, I happen to have had malaria myself. I really? went up to New Guinea when I was um, in my uh, uh, late teens, I think, uh, and I picked up malaria there, and it certainly knocked me around for a while. But, of course, I, then, I was back in Australia by the time it hit me, and I had excellent medical attention. And uh, I think I had about three bats of it. It came back a couple of times. But, yeah, you feel terrible and, and weak. And if I hadn't been able to get the right drugs, I would have had that for much longer. So, so there is a, a big quality of life impact in, in preventing people getting malaria, and they can work better and provide better. So in that sense, some of that is comparable to what Give Directly does. Um, they're handing out cash transfers mm-hmm. to people, um, and they're, again, rigorously examining what happens to people or to villages in which the poorest people get cash transfers uh, as compared with others where they don't. And they're, of course, aware of problems like creating dependence. 
They're aware of the idea that was floated around before they really started, that if you give people cash, they'll spend it on alcohol or gambling or prostitutes or something like that. Um, so they had to test all of that very, very rigorously. And it turns out that that doesn't happen, that um, uh, you know, people spend the money on often on capital goods that they could not otherwise have afforded, um, like getting a tin roof for their house where they just had a thatched roof. Uh, having a tin roof saves you money in the long run because mm-hmm. it lasts longer, but uh, unless you can you know, get $300 together, you can't afford it. And for families that are on maybe 700 to to $1,000 a year, you can't save $300. So... Uh, Though you know that makes a clear difference to their quality of life, and then you know there's been research following up, finding out what happens. Do their children go to school more often? Do they eat better? Um, do they have more assets in the long run? So you have to look at those indications. And even when you do, it's still hard to say. You know, in a sense, some people will say, "Well, I'm still going to prefer the intervention that is more likely to save a life than the yeah. one that is more likely to give a family a better quality of life." But I think you could go either way on that because, after all, if people get out of poverty, they're likely to have also healthier lives. They're likely perhaps to have better sanitation, better nutrition, so their children will be stronger to resist diseases mm-hmm. that are still going to be around. Uh, so it's it's pretty difficult to make that call, and I th- that's why we recommend both Give Directly and the Against Malaria Foundation. Yeah, I was a little surprised at Give Directly in terms of alcohol and tobacco use it in fact went down, which was really impressive, you know, when you when you think about it, because it was completely contrary to what many people said what would happen. Yeah. Because uh, I think they saw opportunity in their lives to do something, and they just got became more diligent and more productive. So it's really... I think that might be right, that if, if you feel that you're stuck in a situation where nothing is ever going to change, yeah, yeah. then you might as well have a drink now and again and forget about it and get some pleasure here or there, right? But if you think, ah... I'm really got a path where I can get out of this situation, get my family out of this situation. I have a cow. <laughs> I can do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever little business opportunity it is that now that you can start, I think I think people will will go for that as as best they can. Um, I have been following this movement, and I'm seeing how it is evolving. So I want to ask you a little bit about indirect impact. Because so much of what it has been up until this point in time has been direct impact along the lines we've talked about, you know, Helen Keller with, uh, you know, vitamin A and, and with the malaria. But then I start to think about um, advocacy and laws and regulation. So if we look at this country here, oh my goodness, what we've been able to do with tobacco by changing those laws have probably saved tons and tons and tons of lives. And if similar legislation could be passed in low-income countries, what would the impact of that be? How does effective altruism uh, think about that, and where is it moving in, in that regard? Yes. I mean, this is one of the things that I was referring to when I said that uh, the life you can save has a somewhat wider yeah. scope than uh, GiveWell, which which tends to focus on those organizations where there is that kind of evidence, although it, it's now branching out and, and getting wider as well. So um, organizations like we have Oxfam on our list, for example, and Oxfam is, uh, you know, among other things that it does, it does direct work in the field, of course, but it's also an advocacy organization, both here in the United States, where it's advocated for, for example, better trade deals, Mm -hmm. or it's um, advocated for the publish what you pay law, which um, makes like oil, American oil companies that are paying for rights to uh, extract oil in a developing country 
have to pay what the, have to publish what they're paying to the governments of those countries so that the people of those countries then know what their governments are getting and can ask what are you doing with that money mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Oxfam has also been a- advocacy within countries helping people so for example in, in Ghana when Ghana discovered oil uh, helping the civil society organizations in Ghana to lobby for an oil for agriculture law, which which doesn't mean that they're pouring oil on the farmlands. <laughs> it, it means that a, a portion of the revenue, by law, a portion of the revenue from the oil rights goes to help uh, sm- smallholder farmers to, to help them to be more successful uh, at farming and at feeding their families. As a 501c3 and as an organization that is absolutely laser-focused on impact, how does your organization measure its impact? We measure our impact by looking at what we're spending um, and comparing that with the funds that are flowing through our, specifically through our work to the organizations we're recommending. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we can track that, um, particularly when people go to our website, look at different organizations, uh, click on one of those organizations, and then uh, donate as a result, they're taken to the website of the organization. They donate to that organization. The organization can track that this donation has come through us, and so we can then total those sums. Uh, and what we found is that we have, uh, I think in the last year, we had a ratio of 13 to 1 for amount of money flowing as compared to the amount of money we spend. So for every dollar that we've spent in trying to promote the idea of effective altruism and the idea of giving effectively... $13 have gone to the most effective charities that we're recommending. And, and we think that that means that we're getting particularly good value, value for money ourselves. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, and I'm sure you probably don't know this, but where do you think that money's coming from? And by that, I mean, do you think it's new donors? Or perhaps you think it's people who've been you know, uh, supporting the international development community and are switching their donations to these organizations. Because one thing other than Oxfam, a lot of these are not the big names that we're used to, you know, the UNICEFs and the Save the Children. There are other kinds of organizations that I think a lot of listeners probably would not be as familiar with. Would that be a fair thing to uh, say? That's, that's definitely true. There are a lot of organizations. Uh, we have about 20 organizations we're recommending. And uh, yes, perhaps Oxfam is more or less the exception. There mm-hmm. are a couple of others that people may know. But I would guess probably for most people going to that website, at least three quarters of the organizations there are ones that they've never heard of, but that have very impressive stories of what they're doing. Now, um, are these people who we're going to give anyway, but are giving more effectively? Uh, I'm sure some of them are, and of course, you know, we regard that as a good thing. But we are doing extensive outreach work, and I certainly know from firsthand experience that there are people who picked up uh, my book, The Life You Can Save, uh, and uh, started giving because of that, and they hadn't really thought about uh, giving very much, or they they'd done it in a you know, just a pretty much random way when somebody had asked them, they'd given a small donation. But uh, it's really encouraging when people say, you've changed my attitude to giving. You know, uh, I was pretty haphazard about it. Now I'm setting aside 10% of my income or whatever it might be. It will vary, of course, with lots of people and with how much income they have. But I'm, I'm setting aside that and I'm going to uh, give that to the most effective charities I can find. So we are definitely bringing new donors into the yeah, area. Yeah, there's no doubt that you have moved the needle. Um you're not just a book and you're not just an organization. You are a movement. <laughs> I mean, I get so many emails from the effective altruist uh, community. I can't believe it. Tell me about your adherence. I mean, who? where's the energy coming from? Who are these people who are 
really engage in effective altruism. This, this is quite a new movement, and it's interesting. In, in the 10 years since I first published The Life You Can Save, and one of the things that I'll be talking about in the new edition though, that's, that's, just, that's, that's just out now um, is the rise of this movement pretty much within that 10-year period. It was mm-hmm. just starting, but really hardly anybody had heard of it in, in 2009. Uh, now we have a worldwide movement with uh, groups all over the world, not just uh, in rich nations like the United States and Canada and uh, Europe and Australia, but um, also groups in a, a number of, of Asian countries, uh, in uh, Latin American countries too. Uh, and um, they're mostly very young. Um, so some of these groups started out as, as campus groups, uh, started by undergraduates, um, uh, here in the United States, for example, I think uh, Rutgers in New Jersey was the the first uh, campus group, and then it spread from there. Um, uh, and then there are people who've you know been through that and are now in their twenties and in careers and are earning and and donating. Uh, but it's it's very much still a young movement. It's it's a well educated movement. I mm-hmm. would say that uh, majority of our people have university education. Um, and perhaps quite a number of them are in sort of the tech areas, IT, startups, and so on. Yeah. Um, disproportionately so. It's got around in those areas. But um, but it certainly attracts uh, other people who are not in those areas but were interested in giving and uh, interested in doing good in their lives and uh, have joined groups. We, there are a number of independent groups and chapters uh, around the world, and I think that supports people in what they're doing. Yeah, a lot of rational people, a lot of math majors I've noticed in the notes that I've been getting, you know, because they look at this in a very quantitative and a very uh, effective way. And I I don't want to say their emotions are not involved because they are, but they're also really getting their head into their giving. I think it's a a combination of of, uh, heart and head. Yeah, it is. But but you're right. It's interesting that you observe that because I've I've noticed that too, that I think uh, people who come from Maths or uh, again, computer science kind of backgrounds are perhaps you know quicker to get the idea that you know yes, I want to do more good. It's not enough that I see a pamphlet with a picture of a smiling child and think yes, this is a good organization. I'll, I'll donate to them. Um, I really need more data. I really need to know mm-hmm. that this organization is doing uh, you know exactly what they're doing with with my donation and that that's better than other organizations would do. Let me ask you one more thing about effective altruism um, and animals. Um, I think it was Jonathan Bentham who believed that every living thing, including animals, should count as one and not more than one. And there are effective altruists who believe that the interests of non-human animals should be accorded the same moral weight as humans and work to prevent the suffering of animals. You have spoken and written about this extensively. How do you look at it? Yes, I certainly look at uh, animal suffering as something that is a bad thing and that we ought to reduce. Uh, You asked me earlier about how we compare causes. This is another one that's very difficult to compare Mm -hmm. um, because uh, part of the argument is that uh, there's such vast amount of animal suffering. In the United States alone, there's something like 8 billion chickens produced each year. Um, 99.999% of those are indoors in factory farms, mm. uh, extremely crowded. Uh, and organizations have been effective in trying to improve animal welfare and trying to get big corporations to avoid uh, factory farm products uh, and provide alternatives. Uh, it's a work in progress, but but it's getting somewhere. So, you know, if you have the choice, you say, well, look, I could save... 
hundreds of thousands of, of chickens from uh, weeks of suffering in these crowded conditions, or I could save one child's life, how are you going to decide that? Uh, and, and I don't have any real way of saying what's the right decision in that comparison. Uh, but you know, people will have their different preferences. And if they are concerned about animal welfare, as I, I think we all should be to some yeah. extent, then, again, we have an organization that does that evaluation. Um, it's called Animal Charity Evaluators, mm-hmm. and you can find that, animalcharityevaluators.org. Uh, and they are assessing which organizations are the most effective. Uh, and one other thing I'll add if you're interested in being effective in the animal field, part of the problem here is that, as I've been saying, the vast majority of animals suffering is inflicted on farmed animals, on chickens and pigs and uh, cows yep. in particular. But the vast majority of the money donated to animal welfare groups in the United States goes to dog and cats, mm-hmm. uh, to shelter organizations, to organizations that are helping to rescue uh, stray dogs and cats. Um, and that's really, really disproportionate, uh, not only to the number of animals suffering, but to the type of suffering. Um, so I would like to redress this balance a bit. You know, again, I would say, as I said, with people wanting to give to their university or to the hospital that looked after their sick relative, you know, if you care about dogs and cats, fine, give something to them. But don't forget about the 99% of animal suffering, which is uh, inflicted on farmed animals. And think about the excellent organizations uh, like the Humane League or Mercy for Animals uh, in the United States that are focused on farmed animals and are really doing excellent work in reducing their suffering. Yeah, you're looking to get people to ask themselves questions that they perhaps never had thought of before. Let me close with this, Peter. Why did you feel it was important to issue this anniversary edition of The Life You Can Save? And what are you saying now about this movement that you weren't able to say 10 years ago? Well, there is a lot more information out there now. And there is this new movement, as we were just saying, the effective altruism movement, uh, which has helped to provide more information. Uh, And in fact, the organization, The Life You Can Save, didn't exist in 2009 because Mm. it spun off the publication of the book. So one of the things that I'm saying now is we have a lot more data about which are the effective organizations. And I can talk about some of the different things that those effective organizations are doing. uh, And I can provide evidence for the good that they're doing, which wasn't there. I can also talk about connecting people to the effective altruism movement and how to be effective in this area. So um, I feel that the book, uh, I mean, I I think it had a strong basis 10 years ago, but I think it has a much stronger basis still in in terms of the evidence that's available now than it did when I first wrote it. Well, you've come a long way, and you are still in the early innings. Well, Peter Singer, the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University, and the author of The Life You Can Save, How to Do Your Part to End World Poverty. Thanks so much for being here this evening. Now, is it true that people can access this book for free? And if so, how do they go about doing that? Yes, that is true. Uh, They couldn't do that with the first edition. But uh, we, the organization The Life You Can Save, has bought back the rights from the publisher precisely because we want to have the widest possible readership and we don't want cost to be a deterrence. So although if you want a print book, we have to charge for that, and that should be in bookstores, um, or you can get it online. Um, But obviously, there's cost in producing it. We can't give that away. But we can give away both an e-book 
uh, and an audiobook where the chapters are read by uh, well-known celebrities. So uh, Paul Simon, for example, of Simon and Garfunkel reads mm-hmm. a chapter. Uh, Kristen Bell and Mike Schur uh, of The Good Place read chapters. Uh, and uh, Stephen Fry, a BBC broadcaster who's well-known to people in England, reads a chapter. I like the fact we have an African uh, woman, Winnie Alma, reading a chapter. I like the fact that there's a lot of different English uh, accents going on in this book, you know, American uh, English, my Australian one, I read a chapter, uh, an African uh, woman, an, an Indian actress, Shabana Azmi. Um, so it's it's really a, a diverse book in itself. Now, how do people get this? They, it's very simple. Uh, they just go to uh, www.thelifeyoucansave.org and they will find a link there for downloading either the ebook or the audiobook, or if you want to, get them both. And Tell your friends about it, too. They can get it as well. Well, thanks, Peter, for a great conversation. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks very much, Denver. It's been great talking to you. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.